Boom. We're live. Gentlemen, welcome back and welcome, Greg, for the first time. Hey, thank you. Happy to be on. So um, today's book for discussion is The Ethics of Money Production by, I'm going to destroy this name, but Jorg Guido Hulsman, I guess. Any corrections on that? I think it's uh, Jorg. Yeah, yeah, Jorg, yeah. Um, and uh, the book is The Ethics of Money Production. And um, I had not read this until recently, but I ha had heard it cited and recommended by a lot of people in the Bitcoin space. And uh, just, and you know, because it was so good and because it touched on so many different aspects of understanding Bitcoin and economics and money. And um, just the, the title alone, I think, is you know, not not provocative, but it's really compelling in terms of getting you to ask that question, maybe for the first time, right? When, I've talked about this book with a few friends in the, in the days leading up to this discussion. And, you know, they're kind of, I get that weird look from them because it's not a concept that they ever thought about. Now, we know as Bitcoiners that, you know, every, anytime we talk about the history of money with friends, it's, it's probably a, uh, we get that kind of a look. But just to realize that there are ethics to the production of money and then, you know, obviously by insinuation, this book explores them, I think is really inviting to kind of expand your idea of the concept of money in the first place. Anyhow, so that's why I wanted to have this discussion about this book. Um, thought it was really good. But before we uh, crack into it, why don't we just go around and uh, get the intros? Al, we'll start with you. All right. Uh, I am Al's Lacrosse um, on, uh, on Twitter. Don't really look like my picture on Twitter. Um, probably best known for hosting Dirtbag Friday, which is a uh, Zoom meetup every Friday evening, Friday afternoon, depending on where you are, um, where anybody can come together and just talk about Bitcoin. Nice. Greg? Uh, I meme on Twitter about Bitcoin. It's not a, <laughs> uh, not a very long explanation about what I do. Richard? Uh, hey guys, I'm Richard. Um, I'm into Bitcoin and, and uh, making films around Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Um, I'm on Twitter, rjames underscore BTC. You can find the links links there. One film called Hard Money and another one called Anatomy of the State, uh, which is based on a book by Murray Rothbard, which um, has a lot of, uh, maybe has some parallels um, and has, has influenced Hulsman a lot in his thinking. So that might be interesting to talk about as well. Yeah, I think first, um, why don't we just go around and get first impressions? We'll get into the details and some of the major themes of the book as we go along. But uh, Richard, why don't you get us kicked off with your in kind of general impressions of this book? I mean, it's a fantastic book. I read it uh, some time ago. Uh, you know, it was one of those books that I read in you know when I was kind of building my. You know, I was really getting interested in Austrian economics, um, and this is one of the. You know, I think one of the really important modern contributions to, to Austrian monetary theory, and it might have been Stefan Levera who turned me on to this, so so I had tip to him for that. Um, he's had Hulsman on his podcast, um, and that's definitely worth listening to. And, uh, yeah, as you say, John, it, you know, it's a topic that is like something from outer space for most people to, to think about money production in in an ethical manner um so just just for that reason alone it's really valuable the way it explores that i, 
I agree with everything in the book pretty much. Uh, you know, I think it's um, I think it's fantastic the way it lays everything out very clearly. Um, you know, particularly in the way it defines inflation, and I think I think Hulsman's definition of inflation is the best definition that I've heard, and he says it's something like an increase in the supply of money over and of, of a particular type of money over and above what the free market alone would create. And I think that sets him up really well um, to go through a thorough analysis. Um, there's some things in the book that I think we, will make for really interesting points to talk about. Like, you know, he it's obviously written in the, what, 2008? So it's the year before Bitcoin. And he's, he, he very much puts out the the regression theory of money saying that money has to be, a, um, you know, the only way money can come about on the free market is if it already has a, a commodity use, like a non-monetary use. It has to start from being useful for something else so it can develop a price on the free market so it can become money. So uh, so that is like a an explanation. A lot of Austrian economists have, have led them to dismiss Bitcoin because it doesn't really have any other you or maybe we can argue about whether it has a non-monetary use or not. Um, and he even says, there's a quote where he says something like, it is unlikely that that the internet c- can ever, it's, it's really, it's it's quite it's quite an interesting quote because it's just before Bitcoin came out. And he says, it's unlikely that the in, the free market and the internet can ever produce um, produce a, a money. Uh, and and he, I think he points towards the fact that information, you know, can't inherently have a have a value. So I think that's um, that might be an interesting thing to to dive into a bit more. Um, but otherwise, and and then the other interesting thing is like how okay, it's the book on the ethics of money production. But when he says ethics, like what does he mean by ethics? How does he define ethics? Like what is the system of ethics that he's actually going to use to to make his judgments? Um, and that's not a simple thing at all. So that could be another interesting thing to to dive into. But yeah, I'm fully. Um, no, it's a, it's it's a fantastic book in general. Yeah, Greg, uh, I want to add on to the uh, the definition of inflation that I also found in the book. Um, I made a note. He said um, inflation is the part of the money supply that comes into being because of the invasion of property rights, and it's a subtle invasion that all Bitcoiners I think know about. Um, no, I really enjoyed the book. It was um, it's one of these guys that asks. A question that you didn't know needed to be asked, um, kind of like the uh, the fish swimming together in the water. Old fish goes by and says, "How's the water, boys?" And they look at each other and say, "Water." Yeah, I looked at the title of the book. Is it Ethics of Money Production? What could be before I got into Bitcoin? I guess the question would be, what what could be ethical or non ethical about money production? It's just needs to be done. It's something that the government handles. And man, he went on a deep dive on the invasion of property rights and counterfeiting and defining, you know, the, the government or non-government agencies doing money printing as a business. And you can apply business ethics to it. Uh, TLDR of the book is that, no, not ethical. (laughs) (laughs) Al, what about you? What were your initial thoughts? I I wanted to touch on a couple of points that those guys made too, um, which, you know, we, uh, we are so used to not questioning certain things because it's just been that way in our lifetime, in our parents' lifetime and so on and so on. Um, and money production is probably the mother of all those things. 
um, in terms of how pervasive it is and how much springs from it. And when you start reading into this, like all of these things which we take for granted, like, well, that's just how money works. It's just how it is. Well, that's how it works right now. That's not how it always did work or always has to work. Um, so it's really eye-opening from that perspective. And a lot of the negatives of how it's working right now, you don't even think about because you're just so used to it, like the weather. Like, yeah, sometimes there's thunderstorms. That's just how it goes. Um, but some of these things are actually man-made. They're not natural phenomena. Um, I really uh, I really liked how he was able to take somewhat esoteric concepts and really make it accessible to the layperson. Um, for anybody who hasn't read the book, it's pretty heavily informed by Catholic philosophy, um, theology to a certain extent, but more, more Catholic philosophers going back to uh, medieval and Renaissance era studies. But um, And you would think that would be really dry, probably, and not relevant to today, but he does a very good job of, of applying it um, and making it feel current. Um, and really, my my strongest feeling on the book was how he opened up um, in his opening letter, essentially with an argument that um, economics has to follow some sort of natural laws, um, as opposed to something where we can just conjure up any economic system and just have it work. The idea of the Austrians is that, no, there there is an inherent natural law to this, and you can't really screw with that any more than if you were an engineer or a physicist. You have to follow those rules when you're designing your system in order to make it work. Um, and, uh, you know, that some of that, um, there may be new truths and new principles that Bitcoin really opens up to the study of Austrian economics. I think that one about inherent properties, when we get into that, um, that's a big one right there. Um, it's a big blind spot that everybody had because there just wasn't anything that fit a counterexample of that until now. But it's a great it's a great book, really fascinating stuff that we don't spend enough time thinking about. Yeah, lo lots of uh, great elements and aspects of the book mentioned. And, you know, let's just jump into the deep end right away because he, he doesn't he makes reference to this, um, you know, Catholic, as you say, philosophy or, or you know, kind of underpinnings, moral underpinnings. Um, but he doesn't dig really into that. He just kind of almost in passing makes reference to just de facto that you know those are good sort of principles that are being diluted or lost in the face of this unethical form of money production that is paper money how did you guys feel about his kind of invocation of that aspect of morality or that approach to morality in this book i think it was fair he also uh, made use of the example of uh in the Bible where they mess with uh, weights and measures really the only time Jesus freaks out in the Bible and goes off on people. Uh, <laughs> and I think they also made mention of that was the real re that was the reason he got crucified. See, uh, he, he was calling himself a king and, and possibly collecting taxes. Am I remembering that correctly? I think so. I'm not the best Bible to ask about that. The wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole time to go back to Al's point about the money stemming from natural law, I just kept thinking about the uh, the point Love was making about um, you know, money either going with or against the thermodynamic arrow of time. You know, like so much of our best money creations uh, fit within the laws of thermodynamics. You know, gold stays gold forever, right? Can't create it, can't transmute it, and Bitcoin is gold but a thousand times better 
So, I mean, it just, it fits within the natural law that he's talking about. The natural law thing is interesting. Uh, And I think, yeah, like I would have liked to see this, this kind of Catholic frame. I would, a thing that he, that he discusses. Yeah. I I maybe would have liked to see more of a framework built around how he was going to, going to use that, as I said, but because he's sort of like, you know, he, he goes back and forth between, you know, talk, talking about the Bible or talking about these old scholars or talking about Austrian libertarian ethics as sort of um, he kind of uses them all here or there. And it is kind of like they are all linked, like these these this scholastic tradition of like Th- Thomas Aquinas and, and this guy, Nicholas Oresme, who he, he quotes quite a lot. Um, like they are... That, that kind of scholastic tradition was sort of an attempt to reconcile Christianity with science or with the use of reason and logic. Um, and it, it kind of set up this process of thinking, which is based on the use of reason and deduction. Like it's it's the opposite of, of what we in modern times call empiricism. It's just like you know, following a process of logic and that um, and, and and using that process to dis- using reason to discover these natural laws or this natural ethical system. And that is a tradition that's con- like the, the modern um, kind of political philosophers like Rothbard um, or, or Hulsman are, are kind of building on that same framework. Like that's um, Mises, um, you know, with human action, you know, that that's the the framework that they use to 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 make their arguments. So I think it does all fit together quite well. You know, talking about what Al was saying about how we'll probably approach these subjects uh, with at least a different perspective, if not a whole new sort of um, you know approach to them uh, as a science. Do you think moving forward in a Bitcoin world, we continue to invoke uh kind of those uh moral historical philosophical underpinnings represented in the catholic teachings and and history or is that something that we i hesitate to use the term no longer need but will it be relevant in a bitcoin world i think there's a universal quality there um it's something to remember too when he's invoking a lot of catholic teaching I think a certain amount of it is probably his own, you know, his own connection to the church. But we've got to remember, too, that if you're if you're reaching back in time and he's doing this from a European perspective, looking at money before it was nation state money, as we know, um, academia and the church were kind of one in the same, especially in the medieval period. Um, If you were a man of letters, you were probably a monk or a priest or something like that. Um, So the fact that he's citing all these Catholic thinkers well, that, that's, those were the professors and philosophers of their time in that era. Um, so while I don't think it's just completely coincidence, I do think he has some religious belief behind it. Um, he's invoking the people who were the thinkers about this stuff of that era. They were almost by definition universally um, in some way church affiliated. So I think that's a big thing. But there is, um, there is a universality of this idea of right and wrong and morals and um, you know, that's one of the biggest arguments for Bitcoin, right? I think for those of us in the maximalist community anyway, it's like, yeah, transactions around the world, that's all cool. But what we really 
the kind of stuff that really, really interests us is tearing down corrupt systems and uh, putting into place things that are much more fair um, and more moral systems. So that we're going to carry that at least for a generation or two as Bitcoiners. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I was just reading a passage where um, one of the, the topics he, he brings up, and it's one we talk a lot about uh, in Bitcoin, is the influence that uh, paper money system has on the individual and has on the state. And one of the, those relationships is just increasing the size and services provided by the state and thereby disincentivizing the individual uh, to be self-reliant. And this has many downstream effects on the family and on behavior and on risk-taking. And um, I thought, yeah, again, like when, when I was reading this book, because I think if you are in Bitcoin long enough, you're at least around these people are bringing these arguments to your attention so much on Twitter or elsewhere that you just, you've, you've already come across them. And now to read this book, I like I was kind of, tickled sometimes to think like, oh, this is where a lot of these probably came from, you know, because he makes so many of those, he elucidates so many of those relationships that emerge as a result of a paper money system. Um, but the, the, the kind of insidious effects on the size of the state because of the paper money, because of the ability for them to use paper money to siphon off the wealth of the citizens they govern and the impacts that that has on on both family and individual behavior i i think that would be a, an interesting one to dig into now if anyone's got some thoughts on not all at once i think the uh <laughs> the it's yeah i you know you can see when you read Saifedean's work you can see some of Hulsman's influence um what on the yeah the the moral aspects and and yeah the influence that money this kind of money creation has on, on society as a whole um and and yeah you, you get this sort of the state on the one side and the family on on the other side and the family I, you could you get you get accused of being a conspiracy theorist when you talk about the state attacking the family but there's definitely something to that uh because i think the the, the nuclear family, um, if you if you put aside moral or or ethical or religious kind of analyses of the family unit, and look at it purely in an economic sense, and and the one person who's written on this in a way that I find fascinating is Hopper um, Hans Hermann Hopper discusses the fan the. the in an anthropological sense or a historical sense the development of the family unit motivated by economics um, and there was a transition from humans living in ba you know bands more like chimpanzees or, or whatever where um, you've got a few dominant males who are the ones who do all all the procreation and and eventually there was a move towards um, but but then the, and then the in that situation the costs of having additional children can be socialized amongst the whole group whereas this move towards a, a family unit with a single mother and a father that internalized the cost of having children on the actual parents. Uh, and so that w turned out to be a more efficient way to organize society and to, to push them past 
to, to push human civilization past this kind of Malthusian limit. Um, and so the state, the, the family unit has been a really important driving force in um, the progress of human civilization in an economic sense. And I think civilization and, and economics are, are intrinsically linked. And so if you know, the framework I always like to put it on is is this social power versus state power, like looking at history as a, a race between the power of the state versus the power of free voluntary society. And I think that the, 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 one of the state's, um, I guess, tactics in whatever form the state takes, whether it's a king or a democracy or a socialist government, is to attack the family unit because the family unit is a, is a centre of of economic power and social power that is external to the state. So the more that the state can break down that family unit and to and usurp the functions of the family unit, the, that allows the state to increase its power. So that's why you see them trying to break down, um, you know, they're taking away education, they want to take away aged care, as many social services as they can um, to, to break down that fat power of the family unit. Yeah. Well, we also want to take over the social services to break the power of the family unit. So you know, you're not relying on your family for uh, health care and child care mm -hmm. and you know the jobs that a uh, family business might provide. You know, you, you you want to end up relying on the state. What's up, Corey? Yeah, it's creating dependency. Exactly. Yeah, it's creating exactly. dependency. Yeah, I think you know one of the points he makes in this book is you know there there may be those sorts of agendas by governments all over the world and perhaps all of them that's certainly an argument to have but I think one of the points that he makes is that it's inevitable when this type of disparity in in power exists you know when one entity has the ability to effectively issue paper money to to monopolize the the production of currency this is the type of relationship that inevitably exists. And just as a simple kind of, you know, it, it's not hard to imagine why, right? If, if family has limited resources to provide whatever the things in, form, in terms of support that they're meant to uh, provide to each other, and this other entity outside of them has limitless resources to attempt to compete to provide those supports, then at some point that entity is going to provide those uh those supports better or more capably or more all encompassingly uh, than the family unit, or at the very least, unless the family unit is incredibly strong. Right. And I think today in society, we're seeing a lot of examples of not all, you know, the family is probably under stress for other reasons as well. But I think this culture of this Leviathan state hanging in the background or the forefront, that's, you know, implicitly saying we will take care of all of these different responsibilities that the family unit may have had previously, and therefore the individuals within those families are are less tied to the family unit for the support that they desire or need, and that ca that causes obviously a change in their behavior away from one conducive to a strong family. I think something like that. Yeah, they're they're doing that while simultaneously distorting the value mechanism tool. Right. So I really means. think you give it in the right order too, though, which is it, it may be whatever the agenda is follows upon the human nature aspect of it, which is to centralize that power and authority. Um, it's not the other way around. It's you first you centralize that power or give yourselves more power, and then you keep coming up with with reasons why you need to do that and why why it's important. Um, 
but he's uh as far as you were talking the original question i think was about the the way he addresses the morality he doesn't mince words too where you know he uses the term counterfeiting throughout the book in a way which it's not a couple of guys in you know ski masks writing out fake dollar bills like from a cartoon or something he he's referring to that as counterfeiting but also to printing money without an increase in reserves behind that money um that is inherently counterfeit and it seems like such a loaded term but it really he's correct to do so i mean that's what's really going on we just don't call it that so you're counterfeiting value um while you may legally have the right to print that that paper the the value that it represents is counterfeit value yeah i just want to read this passage uh, from the book but he says a cursory glance at the historical record shows that the exponential growth of the welfare state which in Europe started in the early 1970s, went hand in hand with the explosion of public debt. It is widely known that this development has been a major factor in the decline of the family, but it is commonly overlooked that the ultimate cause of this decline is fiat inflation. Perennial inflation slowly but assuredly destroys the family, thus suffocating the earthly flame of morals, to your point, Al. And then he goes on to say, the fact is that libertine lifestyles carry, and this, you know, obviously his judgment comes in here, but I think it's an easy one to argue, The fact is that libertine lifestyles carry great economic risks. The welfare state socializes the cost of morally reckless behavior and therefore gives it a far greater greater prominence than it would have in a free society. The welfare state systematically exposes people to the temptation of believing that there are no time-tested moral precepts at all. Um, And I'll just, one more paragraph. Let us emphasize that the point of the preceding observations was not to attack welfare services, which are in fact an essential component of society, Neither is it here our intention to attack the notion that welfare services should be provided through the government. The point is, rather, that the fiat inflation destroys the democratic control over the provision of these services, that this invariably leads to excessive growth of the aggregate welfare system and to excessive forms of welfare, and that this in turn is not without consequences for the moral and spiritual character of the population. Uh, But they And the final point is that fiat inflation is a juggernaut of social, economic, cultural and spiritual destruction there you go (laughs) what stuff well tying that back into the the topic you were hitting just before because you're john you were kind of comparing uh and by the way good to see all you guys i I think i've you too buddy talked with all of you on a podcast except for one of you so it's good to see you again um you know you were sort of comparing uh what a family can do for itself versus what the government can do with limitless resources. But it's not even a fair comparison. And I think that's what the passage that you just hit really makes incredibly clear because you are simultaneously, while gathering more power in the centralized entity, you're also just absolutely destroying and inflating away the power of the family to provide for itself or for small communities to provide for themselves because you're uh, essentially taxing through inflation and, uh, you know, sort of ripping away the the foundations of sort of how we evolved as, as humans and as societies and families, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's absolutely not a fair fight. It's a totally fixed game. I think that's what I take away from that passage. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Yeah, just they're siphoning the power away through inflation. It's a violation of the of the property rights of the families that are that are having that value stolen from them. Nobody asked them if that was a tax they'd be willing to bear, and the state just does it. If they had met the barrel of a gun.
It might be worth that. I agree 100% with all that. And it might be worth digging in a bit deeper to the mechanism by which he, he actually defines inflation at, or, or, or how inflation is actually a an invasion of people's property rights because that's not an intuitive thing to understand uh, at all. Um, so I think that might be something interesting to discuss. And yeah, let's do it because it's it's pretty much the foundation of the book uh, upon which everything else is predicated and we didn't really give it its proper due. So go for it. Yeah, so... Um, so he, he he builds up to to uh, the main point being that the most important aspect of all this is the legal tender laws that that force people to use one form of money over another. He said that without the legal tender laws, nothing else is actually that important. Like the the, the fact that the state counterfeits money, well, if they that that's been happening since the beginning of states and as long as people have a free alternative available to them then they can just go to that but it's force it's the forcing one upon them through a legal tender law um so that that is where the infringement of property rights occurs where the state says you must you know say i want to say i own gold and i want to make a transaction denominated in gold the state will say no you're not allowed to use your gold in that manner um, you have to use our our paper notes or if, if you're going to hold that gold we will put a capital gains tax on that so um, you know it's interesting the way he talks about counterfeiting um, and he's he's actually not as critical he obviously says counterfeiting is wrong and uh, in the in whatever moral framework that you that you apply to it because it's it's basically a, a type of fraud um, but he says that you know if and, and that counterfeiting will occur on the free market if we just allow anyone and if, if we allow free for all when anyone can create whatever money and use whatever money that they want we will have people trying to counterfeit money whether that is debasing coins or whether it's circulating certificates to to a base money that doesn't exist but like the and, and that unfortunately individuals will get deceived and hurt by that but that it's not systemic like it 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 the, there's an anti-fragility to that system because people are, are hyper vigilant to it um and whenever there's an attack on the system like it it, it has a way to self-correct whereas the legal tender laws is like a, a structural gives this legitimacy to to the the theft uh, and that's where where the problem really arises and it's it's a historical pattern that repeats itself like it's not uh, that that's the other thing that's interesting like it's not that the state can't just impose a, a worthless paper ticket and uh, apply a legal tender law and say use this like that that's doesn't work it has to be a historical process where they the first thing they do is, and you see it over and over they impose this bimetallism so they peg the price of usually gold and silver and then that under Gresham's law that drives out one of the two. Often it's it's driven out silver. Then you get a monopoly on the gold production that, that becomes centralized. Um, then you get the legal tender law, the paper certificates that are expanded beyond the base money, and then you sever the link so you can no longer redeem the paper for the, the precious metal. And that that fiat fiat money has kind of followed that path in pretty much every instance that and that's how it came to be today yeah and i think 
to your point about this not being intuitive, you know, the, the, the thing I find funny that I've brought, it, brought up in conversations recently with, with friends is most people have at least an awareness of inflation. You know, stuff gets more expensive. Candy bar was five cents when our parents were around and now they're, they're a buck or a buck 50 or whatever. So people get it, you know, that, that prices go up. And they may even understand that it's a loss of purchasing power from their perspective. But so few people realize that it's more accurately described as a transfer of purchasing power, right? So yes, you lost it, but it didn't just evaporate into the ether. It was taken from you and somebody else uh, gained purchasing power from that loss of yours. And I think if that was more understood, there'd be a lot more pushback to how this system works and how this process unfolds. But of course, uh, there's not much, it, it obviously doesn't get much airtime uh, because it would make the whole process even more damning than it is. But I, I, you know, there's one passage here that I'll just read out um, and it's talking about inflation, but it says uh, the prince, you know, going back to uh, a previous bygone era, has the right to make a simple alteration to the coin and draw some profit from it. He must also have the right to make a great, greater alteration and draw more profit. And to do this more than once and make still more. And it is probable that he or his successors would go on uh, doing this either of their own motion or by the advice of their counsel as soon as this was permitted, because human nature is inclined and prone to heap up riches when it can do so with ease. And so the prince would be at length able to draw to himself almost all the money or riches of his subjects and reduce them to slavery. And this would be tyrannical, indeed true and absolute tyranny, as it is represented by philosophers and in ancient history. One wonders what this great mind might have said about the monetary institutions of our time. Already in his day, Oresme stated that institutionalized inflation, as it can only exist under the protection of government, turns such a government into a tyrant. And this tyranny becomes perfect if the government can enshrine inflation into law. Um, and, you know, I bring that up just because lately, you know, we've seen Jay Powell on the TV talking about trying to hit a, a CPI inflation and Again, there's a distinction there that should be made, but uh, is over most people's heads, um, where that's a mandate, you know? So that's exactly what he was just talking about in this book. And basically that, you know, the timescale is the only thing really um, that's up for debate. The inevitable outcome is, is quite clear and there's many historical precedents. And so that's one of the things, the values of this book is it brings that to light for people that maybe previously didn't consider things in that way. Lowers the reader's time preference. He also, you know, the, the book's not very heavy on math, but he does get into numbers at a couple of parts where he's talking about ways in which those princes of that era debase the currency um, and, you know, puts a number on it, basically how much they're doing that, and then compares it to now, what central banks have done. And keep in mind, this came out in 08, so... These numbers are nothing compared to to what we're looking at now, but it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, eras of, um, say, coin clipping, debasing metal coins, which we'd look at and say, oh, yeah, they went way overboard. That's crazy. They were nothing compared to what's going on now. So it's kind of chilling when you read that. Yeah, it's like from he, he says so it's like from eleven hundred to sixteen hundred in England. So a 500-year period, they debased the, the coinage by 0.3 so, or something, so 
over 500 years. And yet this year, the monetary base has inflated like 23% or something. So in one year, we've basically had the equivalent of 500 years worth of inflation of the kind that, that they were criticizing. And the amazing thing is that those passages by Orezm pretty much sum up everything that we could possibly put in an argument against inflation. Like it is in, it was, he already figured it out in the 14th century. Like he says, to your point, John, like he says, the, the prince's gain must, must inevitably come at the community's loss. Uh, talking about changes to the coinage. So that that's sort of the, the cantillon effect and the redistribution effect that we talk about. Like it's a zero-sum game and only has negative consequences. And it had been this, none of this is new. It had been figured out 600 years ago. Yeah, it's not like we're just discovering these problems. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's interesting. He, he doesn't mention hyperinflation that often. And I think he only mentions seniorage once and one of the ways that he refers to and you know he's writing in 2008 so things are probably pretty fresh in his mind uh and i'd love to hear what his perspective on things are today although i can expect what they they would be but um you know he's one of the things he says about seeing hyperinflation in the west in particular in the us is uh two things one he says you know when the foreigners stop buying our dollars that's when we'll really see the impacts of all this money printing. And I know there's, you know, the, the debt uh, components of all that, and there's a, a few other factors. And then he says, you know, the U.S. has convinced um, the other countries to dollarize either directly or indirectly by sharing the seniorage with them, you know, so by sharing the benefits of, of that. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that process unfolds, how you, sh how that seniorage is shared. If any of you have insight on that, I'd love to hear it. But, you know, it is one of the big questions today is like, how long can this persist? And I, I wonder with, you know, moves toward different forms of currency, even from the central bank and, and government level, um, you know, as incompetent and, and slow to be developed as they may be, it will that cause a de-dollarization of, of the world? And will that be the impetus for, you know, a hyperinflation in places like the U.S. And, you know, if the U.S. hyperinflates, I got to assume most other paper currencies around the world as well, uh, will as well. So uh, what what were your guys' thoughts on those points that he mentioned in the book? Well, with sharing seniorage, a pretty clear example is like the euro dollar. You know, that's not redeemable anywhere outside of the eurozone, right? So if the Fed's got swap lines to European banks with uh, – with your dollars going out, but they can't come back. Uh, any loans made in those denominations go straight to you know, those banks closest to the money spigot, essentially. That would be sharing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll with the sharing scene, I agree with 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 what Greg said. And also he uses the um, the analogy of like a pyramid. So if you if you isolate just a single country, the way it works is you've got your base layer, which is the, at the base of the pyramid, gold. Or actually, it's more like an inverted pyramid because it gets bigger. So the gold's at the bottom. The central bank holds the gold and issues bank reserves to the commercial banks. So the bank reserves of the of the central bank are the next layer. Then the commercial banks l use the bank reserves and lend out as a multiple on top of that. So you get this ever-expanding um amount of credit and he says that 
And, and, and that system always has a centralizing tendency because it allows for more inflation at each level. And he says that that plays out on an international scale as well. So with the United States as the base, so like all the gold in the world get, got pretty much sucked into the United States and that was a historical accident of, of the world wars. Then, um, so it, it came to be that the, the, the US and the Fed became the kind of central bank of the world. They, they, they export their US dollars to the rest of the world and most of the other central banks, instead of holding gold as their main reserve, they actually hold US dollars and they then inflate credit based on the US dollars. So, so the, the, uh, these other countries are like the higher level of the pyramid. And Hulsman says that the way that works is it restricts the United States in a certain extent. Like the lower you are down in the pyramid, the less you can inflate. Um, you're, it actually puts a break on you. So the countries that use the US dollar as a reserve asset can actually inflate at a higher and get away with it at a higher percentage than the US dollar. But that's offset by political power. So the US makes that trade. Like it, it wants countries to dollarize and accepts the fact that it limits the US to some extent in their ability to inflate because it gives them the political power over those countries like a modern empire building. So do you guys think that, you know, this central bank digital currency push from uh, banks, central banks outside the US is an attempt to de-dollarize? You know, because a lot of people in the world, a lot of governments and institutions probably want that. It's just a precarious, you know, you got to be careful with how you do it. It's a very precarious situation. Is that part of the motivation you think is behind all that? I would think in the short term, it's more um, surveillance and control motivated for most countries um, because it gives you this incredible panopticon. Um, you know, I think China would love to de-dollarize the world at some point. I don't know if they're really in the middle of trying to take on that project right now. Um, Russia probably too, but they don't really have the juice to do that on their own. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that is one way that they could start. I just think they're going to be too late. It's, it's not going to be their, their central bank's digital currency. If that happens, it's going to be Bitcoin, but that's my humble opinion about Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, kind of building on that, I'd say China would like to see, uh, anybody and everybody get onto anything other than the dollar. Um, and if it's a digital yuan of some sort or just the yuan as it is, you know, pre CBDC, then they'd love that too, just as long as it moves away from the dollar and kind of provides a counterbalance. The European countries and sort of the the participants and kind of the, the IMF or, you know, global world order, Western order, whatever, um, that are sort of sick of the dollar underpinning everything. I just see them kind of flirting with the CBDCs uh, a little bit more as probably a bargaining chip and saying like, hey, there's this thing we can do. And I, I suspect it will probably end up with, you know, monetary negotiations and trade negotiations and, and all kinds of other things between the US and the EU and whoever else actually can garner a seat at the table to, to matter in that sort of negotiation. Um, but, you know, <laughs> thinking about the EU actually pulling off a functioning, you know, central bank digital currency uh seems rather unlikely i also think that uh even in the uk where you know they're they do seem like they're sliding down this slippery slope toward uh panopticon or whatever you know i i think there are still enough uh you know sort of free th thinking children of uh the enlightenment 
in the UK to kind of try to head that off. Uh, you know, the bad guys in too many sci-fi movies have been British. I feel like they have one more fight in them and <laughs> can probably avoid it. I think, you know, I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that the UK can avoid becoming big brother, uh, you know, before Bitcoin is large enough to sort of, uh, do what it's going to do. So hopefully that's the case. I really think the whole Western world is going to avoid the scariest of the sci-fi scenarios with regards to, uh, you know, a panopticon through the money supply. Um, I'm, I hope so fighting for it, <laughs> but we yeah. need Bitcoin yeah. soon. Yeah, exactly. You know, th this discussion makes me think about the, cause he brings up the gold standard, uh, a couple times in the book, you know, he doesn't dig into it too much, but he's not all that, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't subscribe to the opinion that it was all it was cracked up to be. And, you know, I often think about when we're talking about central bank digital currencies and Bitcoin and the game theory around this, you know, surely it's got to be in the best interest of a lot of countries, even though they would relinquish the control of, let's say, currency issuance and the, you know, the tracking abilities that they would have on their citizens and spending and stuff if they adopted Bitcoin. But if they really think, like I take someone like China, and I know this this may be contentious, but let's just go with the narrative that China is, you know, incredibly productive country, you know, they manufacture everything, they can compete well on a global stage. Let's let's just assume that for now, and we can dig into the merits of that assumption if, if you want. But from the perspective of a, a, a global player like that, and relating it back to how everyone adopted gold in, in let's say, the late 1800s, and in this book, you know, he suggests that it was done uh, on an international level, uh, organically. Um, why wouldn't those those countries want to adopt something like Bitcoin just so that they can be playing on a fair, uh, you know, on a, uh, a fair playing field, um, and let the merits of their country's capacity and prowess, uh, you know. The, the merits of that be revealed and the, the benefits accrue rather than everyone, you know, doing basically the same thing that we've done with paper money, but with a CBDC. Yeah, it's, it, that's an interesting point uh, with the CBDC. Yeah. It's like the, um, in terms of countries adopting a Bitcoin standard, I find that a really, the, the game theory behind that I find fascinating and I want to come back to that. I think the, the other thing about the central bank digital currencies, my, I think that the other issue at play, like obviously there's the surveillance, um, uh, you know, panopticon thing. There's also the, the global power struggle about, about which currency is the reserve currency. But I, my personal opinion is that the, the central banks are pushing the digital currency right now more from a purely economic sense in that they're trying to they want it'll give them finer control over things like inflation or or, or their national economies like because at the moment there you're seeing them pump up the, the base money and the bank reserves but the banks the commercial banks are the ones that that actually increase the money's the usable money supply in the economy and the banks aren't lending. They're getting rid of reserve accounts, getting rid of whatever, but they can't get the banks to lend this money into the existence to get the inflation that they want. But if they can bypass the, the commercial banks and just airdrop this currency directly to, to the citizens, 
the citizens will then spend and that will create that nominal GDP growth that they're looking for. So I think it's a combination of all those things. And then, yeah, I don't actually have a good answer about countries going on a Bitcoin standard. Obviously, there's a lot of benefits to, to that for, for your... And I think, obviously, it, it would make sense for countries to be buying Bitcoin right now. But having a... The other thing is... You know the, this, the competitive devaluations that all the countries around the world are engaged in right now. Um, you know, trying to make your economy more competitive um, to to boost your exports. Um, you know, like that's such a, a powerful game that everyone's playing. That I I don't know. I'm I play devil's advocate. I'm interested in, in what people have to think about. Uh, and and I heard Jeff Booth talking about this um, about one of the problems with countries. Or, small countries going on a, a Bitcoin standard is that, you know, if, if people are only willing to work for, for a certain amount of Bitcoin, like it means that it's good and that living standards can, can potentially rise or real wages can rise, but, but it, whether that makes your country uncompetitive on a, on a global scale, um, I find that interesting. I don't really know the answer to that. But it's like he, he makes a point often in the book. It's like inflation doesn't bring any new resources into existence, right? It just reallocates them. So like all of these countries, like I get the allure of, of well, one, enrich, you know, if you're at the helm of the, the, the governmental structures in these, in these countries, I mean, that's, that's probably what it's mostly about because being at the, the, the top of that gives you the power to enrich yourself and enrich your cronies and, and, you know, be a basically a king in the world, because just using that to to try to compete with other countries based on your, you know, how witty you can be in your selective devaluation and the timing of your devaluation of the currency to make whatever your resources are more competitive on the global market. I mean, it's got you got to be able to see that as being incredibly short term. And you know, what are you going to outsmart two hundred different countries on the on a global stage through that uh, process? Like, doesn't it just make more sense from a purely competitive point of view to just all be competing, you know, on the same field? So I think it's it's probably, and he makes allusions to this this frequently throughout the book, just kind of the the tyrannical, um, you know, the 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 the, the trend towards uh, tyranny that uh, such a system of of fiat paper money inspires and i think the reason why it persists is because it benefits the people that are at the at the top of it that's probably why i mean we're we're, we're trying to make sense of something here that doesn't make any sense right uh, on the topic of cbdc's um he he touches on it a little bit obviously he doesn't call them that um on my copy it's the bottom of page 37 in the money certificates chapter uh but he um he speaks about how it's an advantage to have multiple people issuing their own uh, their own coinage. And even if some of them are, are abusing their trust and debasing their currency, it's actually a good thing because it's it's educational um, for, uh, for everyone. Helps them to kind of understand things a little bit better. And I'm wondering if um, central bank digital currencies might be that where we talk about them kind of in the same breath as Bitcoin just because they're a digital money, but obviously, you know, anyone on this call knows there's a huge difference. It may be useful to the public to see that because the narrative is going to be, oh, this is our Bitcoin. Like we we made our own Bitcoin and it's not going to be long until people, you know, number go up is a bitch with that. Like people are going to notice that 
things are happening with Bitcoin that are not happening with these uh, CBDCs. So they may do us a favor in the long run doing that because they're going to they're going to give everybody a I'd say a free lesson. It's not going to be free, but a lesson we're not going to be paying for ourselves on why Bitcoin is better money. I think that's 100 percent right. Cash and Bitcoin SV and Litecoin. Yeah, I mean, by definition, it's just going to make people question the nature of money way more than they ever have before. Uh, just like really the last few days, you know, have have caused at least some small percentage of people to say, like, what the heck was Bretton Woods? What is this thing? What are you talking about? What is this new deal for the international monetary system? Oh, wait, what is money? Wait, what's this Bitcoin thing? You know, it just happens. I think it happened last summer with uh, all the noise with Libra and the Libra hearings that brought a lot of people into Bitcoin, got a lot of people interested, got people starting companies, got people joining companies. It, it helped some people start down the rabbit hole. Um, it's just bound. It's bound to happen that way. Um, you know, just one note on, you know, CBDCs with regards to the U.S. and the potential for a Fed coin. I think we're starting to get pretty clear signals that that's not in the offing, not something that the government thinks could be taken on, nor would be taken on, nor would be desirable to be taken on. Um, you know, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Brian Brooks got interviewed at a blockchain conference and, uh, and said he doesn't see that coming ever or anytime soon. And, and that, you know, the U.S. would be much more likely just to create a, a framework and let people digitize the dollar, essentially just let, you know, GUSD and Tether and USDC and whoever else wants to, you know, digitize dollars or have digital representations of, of dollars in the existing system just go forward. That's how I see that going. And then kind of just to extend it further and bring it back to Bitcoin, you know, I, I think the, the advantages that the U.S. has, you know, just geographically, demographically, culturally, whatever, entrepreneurship, all those different things, and just historically, you know, if the, if the playing field were fair, the U.S. would be just fine. And I think that's going to become more and more clear to people in the U.S. government over time. And we'll just be like another argument that people will make more and more eloquently and will write about. And we'll start to see becoming true. You're seeing U.S. companies, you know, pile into Bitcoin, PayPal today. I just got a note from uh, one of our investors saying, you know, whisper is that PayPal will, you know, buy some custodian for a billion dollars soon. You know, so they're probably going to go full whole hog and not just do the Robin Hood thing. Um, you know, I, I just think it's going to spread so far so fast through the American companies that, you know, they'll build out Bitcoin infrastructure so fast um, it's going to make our heads spin over the next five years or so. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, I think we're going to blink and open our eyes one day and we're going to be like, oh my God, we're here. Like, how did that happen overnight? You know, it's the, the old gradually then suddenly saying. Yeah, I agree. But do you guys think, you know, it's been really smooth sailing. Do you, do you still think, you know, along, along this, uh, line of discussion about, um, you know, government's plans and their attempts to maintain their control and, you know, this uh, this gravy train that they're at the helm of. Do you think it's, you know, going to be contentious, like really contentious? Or as Corey was just saying, and as I know, we've all been paying very close attention to this, we just see, you know, further and more rapid integration and adoption with, you know, you know, the big companies, the big financial institutions and other institutions of our society. And it just becomes so... Uh, 
you know, normal. That, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think Corey's wrong. I don't think, I don't think um, CBDCs are going to be okay with the tethers and the USDCs of the world. I think if uh, I think everything's trending to a, a digital coin, central bank derived. That's um, specifically U.S., by the way. Specifically U.S. Okay. That's U.S. only, yeah. So Brian Brooks was the former Coinbase guy that's now acting comptroller of the currency in the U.S., and that's his view. And I think you probably got enough. If you had that in mind and then you listened to Powell on the panel uh, the other day, I think you got enough hints that that's mm -hmm. probably the approach for the U.S., not that I think there's consensus. I mean, there's people having all kinds of conversations that aren't necessarily talking to each other, but it would be hard for me to see the U.S. taking on that project, and if so, doing it well. And, you know, just to, to make another distinction between gold and Bitcoin and dunk on the gold bugs a bit, because um, in the book, the passage reads, referring to the gold standard, its ultimate effect was not to give the citizens of the world an efficient monetary system, but to deliver a pretext for national governments to finally bring the monetary systems of their countries under their control. The classical gold standard was therefore hardly a bulwark of liberty. It was a crucial breakthrough for the societal scourge of our age, governing, uh, government omnipotence. Now, I know the gold bugs would freak out at something like that because, you know, gold is the savior of everything. But um, I think that's a big distinction, you know, and so maybe they were willing to adopt that, you know, better form of money because of what they were able to do um, as a result of adopting it, the control that it ultimately gave them. And then the little bait and switch that they did on everybody uh, versus something like Bitcoin. So, you know, it remains to be seen if they'll, they'll willingly adopt Bitcoin, if it becomes so, so big and so uh, ingrained that they can't ignore it. But, I guess we'll see. That, yeah, the point about why um, countries in the, the 19th century adopted gold in the, that Hulsman makes is really interesting. And it's something I hadn't considered before. You know, you sort of assume that, okay, that they were actually, maybe they were more enlightened in terms of they were adopting gold because it was sound money. But yeah, it's a really good point he makes that it's more likely that they were adopting gold because of its centralizing tendencies and because it was a step a step on the road to to greater control of the country's money supply and he makes this really interesting point that you know a monopoly a government monopoly on a certain kind of money production is inflationary in one sense but it's also deflationary in another sense because it drives out all the other monies that people would have used otherwise bef before there was a monopoly so you see that with with the demonetization of silver um like like i'm conditioned to think of silver in a really negative light uh, you know safedine says oh silver is a shit coin it you know it's 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 got a it's can't compete gold for stock to flow um you know it's not a good store of value but horseman makes this really good case for silver like he says silver is is it's kind of like the money of the people, like because it is um, can be used in very small transactions. Um, people are more likely to to physically transact in it, and they're more likely to hold it. Um, so it'll, it, it it empowers individuals to hold onto their money. Whereas because gold is not practical to use in a small transaction, it gets held in bank vaults, which get gets it then gets exploited through inflation. Um, so I find that. Yeah, that was a really interesting argument that he didn't, uh, that, that I hadn't really considered before. 
just making the argument that it was more than just gold and silver too. I think he brought copper into the. Mm. Yeah, yeah he, no he, he, he couldn't have more than more than one. Yeah, well, he was very much in the camp of you know free market for money sort of thing, and I, I got the the impression that he wasn't so adamant that the market would coalesce on one dominant money, but that there may be multiple monies in use. And actually, I, I want to touch on this a couple more points, um, at least from my side. But the commodity theory of money, you know, he invokes that um, in the book and basically saying, you know, money first has to have a real world, basically consumable use case. Um, and being in Bitcoin, and this is one of the stumbling blocks for people to understand Bitcoin and one of the um, criticisms or at least attempted criticisms that it often gets. And uh, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on why it's not necessarily, you know, the regression theorem is not necessary. Money doesn't have to regress back yeah. uh, to some form of commodity or use value. Yeah. If I could jump in here, because I was talking about that early on. Um, mm. I think that may be, you know, one of the ways in which Bitcoin sort of makes Austrian economics mature into a new iteration. Um, because you hear that constantly, this idea of well, what is the intrinsic value? We all know Peter Schiff has kind of died on that hill. Um, what is what is the intrinsic value, the intrinsic value? And what it really comes down to is you're asking, OK, what does this stuff do? Um, whether it be, you know, cows or metals or whatever you're trading. Ultimately, at some level, it starts off with the idea of what does this stuff do? And it's a, it's a false belief, this idea, well, Bitcoin doesn't do anything because it doesn't have any physical properties. What Bitcoin does is Bitcoin has unforgeable scarcity. And that's what it does. It does do something. It, that's what it does. And that more so than its electrical conductivity or malleability or how the, its luster and jewelry, all these things that gold has, that is a more important property for something that's going to be a monetary asset than any of that. And it's just, we never thought of it before because it never existed. And this is a case of sort of reality, sort of backfilling theory a little bit here, but that's what Bitcoin does. It's a digital scarcity and nothing else does that. So that's a property. It also is a way that it transmutes electrical work into mathematical value. It's a math battery. It stores that mathematical value through time indefinitely without loss. Yeah, I've I've often yeah. wondered. Sorry, Richard, go ahead. No, no. You, oh, I was just gonna say I agree with Greg. Like I agree with both of you guys that um, that it almost doesn't matter because, and I think the, the the obvious answer is that the regression theorem is obviously a theory that can explain how money comes into being, but it's not the only way that money can come into being. And, but we also just have to accept the fact that, I mean, all of us here view Bitcoin as money and use Bitcoin as money. So it is money. So there must, so, so there must kind of be, it has a value. So there must be an explanation for it. Um, Austrians also say the value is subjective. So um, in terms of, so that that makes it thorniest to actually explain what what is a use case like maybe i just value bitcoin purely for the the elegance of the cryptography or something like that um and so i think a, a good reference here is sabo's um shelling out article i think his explanation of the origins of money is 
I personally think it's a much better explanation than than anything you read in, like the in the it's different to the regression theorem and he talks about useless items becoming valuable like uh, like these collectibles these shells these carved necklaces they they literally have no utility um, but through this curiosity that they they gained a monetary value and as Al said it's because of this unforgeable costliness like that is the that is the thing. So, yeah, I think um, there is a strong case to say that that Bitcoin invalidates the regression theorem a, a little bit, um, this, this idea that you have to go back to barter. Um, but Sabo, in shelling out, I think laid out a, a theory that this was before the time of Bitcoin, and I think he laid out a theory of the origin of money that, that perfectly can incorporate things like Bitcoin which is why I think his explanation of the origins of money is the best. Yeah. He also said that uh, the fact that an item doesn't have any utility increases its monetary value. Well, that well, that's just the point, right? This is the part, the part that I always found peculiar is, you know, they would talk about its like use value or its consumable value and then its monetary premium, whether it's gold or salt or, or whatever. And it's always like, well, sure. So, you've just divided it. You've divided it into its consumption value and you've said it's valued for its monetary premium. Where it does the value, why do people value it for that monetary premium? Well, they're, they're valuing it that way because of its attributes and properties that can allow them to use it as money. You know, and we don't have to get into all those here, but I feel like I don't know why the leap is so difficult when, when something like Bitcoin comes up to call it a pure monetary premium like it's all monetary premium and and why is that any fundamental like why is that a fundamental distinction between something that's 90 percent monetary premium and 10 percent consumption you know or or use demand like you know it's you're just taking something and based on its properties deciding that it's useful for something bitcoin is incredibly useful for money based on its properties and the gold bugs understand this too, which in the way you can tell is, you know, they, they contradict themselves because, and again, I'll pick on shift because he's the biggest name of this who, who's always mixing it up with Bitcoiners. But when he's talking about, you know, inherent uh, value and all that, when gold was on a run up in, what was it? 2009, 2010, you know, was he touting gold saying, look, we've, we've discovered all these new uses and properties of gold and that's why it's worth so much more. No, he's touting its monetary value as a hedge against inflated currency. So why is gold suddenly worth more? It didn't suddenly get all these new properties, but he doesn't care about that, right? He cares about its uh, its unforgeable scarcity property. Yet somehow when you want to transfer that to Bitcoin, it's like, oh, no, that doesn't count. Like it's, it's silly. It's just a matter of being too used to this never existing before. So it's hard to wrap your mind around it or maybe having incentives not to do so. Yeah, for him, yeah. incentives. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I, you know, the the I am, I'm a little bit less diff, you know, hard on the the that type of thinking, just because this is the first time we've ever had a pure monetary yeah. asset, right? So okay, it's a bit of a paradigm shift. But uh, again, I, I don't see why there's a fundamental distinction about how you price a monetary premium. It's the same. It's just that this is all monetary premium. You know? If you listen to Holzman. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Just, I just quickly say that you have to give him credit that in in recent interviews he's very open to Bitcoin and he said that he sees no reason why Bitcoin couldn't 
become money. So he's obviously he's not a, he's not a full on Bitcoin advocate, but he's obviously he hasn't let that stop him from being open to Bitcoin. So at least he's open to that. Yeah, I'm just picking on him as a figurehead. Really, it's not him in particular. Oh, a shift has no hope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to give a quick shout out to, uh, to Connor Brown because he, he did that piece last year. I think it was like May of 19. Uh, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and that's great. And it was like super short, super to the point and made the point really, really clearly. So uh, I, I loved that one. And I think Guy did a, a readout of it on Bitcoin Audible as well. So you can go find that. Yeah, that was a great piece. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, eye opening. Uh, just that this can even be possible, especially for people that ascribe to, you know, whether it's, yeah, well, mostly the Austrian kind of theory of money, because anyone ascribing to the state theory of money, you know, they're probably already lost. They're not too good. <laughs> um, another one, I, one, one of the last things I wanted to touch on from the book was um, interest rates. This is something that I feel like, again, doesn't get that much press. Obviously, there's good reasons for that. But it's even more kind of buried down the list of, you know, financial fuckery that's going on under the current system. And, um, you know, again, people get inflation to a certain degree. It hurts their their wallet and they get it. But very few people, um, you know, entrepreneurs more so, but even them have a very probably poor appreciation for the role of interest rates, what should be setting interest rates and what disparities uh, or intervention in the free market setting of interest rates has on, you know, the economic calculation that's done in an economy and thus the the ability for it to succeed and avoid, you know, kind of boom-bust cycles and the, the detrimental impacts um, and facilitation of boom-bust cycles that a central bank setting interest rates has. So anybody have particular thoughts on that one? It, he... Um... He lays out a good, like the, the early part of the book is he is um, Halsman lays out the, the, the case that modern sort of neo Keynesian economics makes for controlling the money supply. And he says that, you know, this, and, and this will come to interest rates. Like he says, it's because you know, if you read a, a modern economics textbook, it'll say it's great that, that um, we can produce paper money and gold is archaic um, because, you know, we don't, we're not wasting money digging it out of the ground. Um, we can, we can increase the money supply in in line with GDP growth and the growth of global trade, and we can also change the money supply to stabilize the the price level. Um, and they're all like Hulsman just destroys all those um, arguments as to why you need um, why you need a, a, to be able to change the money supply. Um, and, and with the interest rate thing, like that's. Um, so, so his argument there is that um, modern economists like to say, "Oh, well, if we can if we can lower interest rates, um, that's going to stimulate economic activity." That's obviously like the, the line that central bankers trot out, like ad infinitum. But there's a very simple, or simple, but there is there is a good argument as to why that's just completely wrong. Because, as you said, John, like changing the money supply doesn't change doesn't increase the amount of real resources all it can do is is redistribute the resources and so if you and if if you leave the money supply alone entrepreneurs who are taking on loans to engage in business activity sure they're going to make errors but 
those in, they're going to be individual errors that, that don't have any domino effects. Whereas using the money supply to artificially lower the interest rate creates a cluster of entrepreneurial error. So like under a, in a free system, people save their money. Um, the amount of the amount of money that they save determines the amount of money stored value that is available to in, to invest, and and that's what gives the, the interest rate. It's that's how the interest rate finds an equilibrium. But if you manipulate the money supply um, and increase the money supply, you lower the interest rate, and then entrepreneurs all of a sudden projects that didn't seem profitable. Um, suddenly become profitable because your cost of capital is lowered. So you get a, a spurt of entrepreneurial activity. People make all these investments. They start engaging in projects. But um, the real supply of resources hasn't increased. So actually, though they've been they've sort of been tricked. Like like those projects can't all be finished. Like there's like if you imagine like the amount of bricks you need to build a, a building, like everyone starts and lays the foundation and then halfway through they realize that they actually can't finish the job because there's not enough bricks there's not enough labor there's not enough of anything and so all of a sudden when that gets found out you have a you have a, a bust um and, and a deflationary event so it's actually the core central bank manipulation of the money supply is the cause of the boom and bust cycle and counter you know counter to modern um prevailing wisdom you'd be much better off to just let the interest rate be naturally determined yeah you know because and that's what he says here is like the interest rate tricks entrepreneurs into thinking there's a certain amount of capital stock when there in fact isn't so it, it necessitates that a certain portion of those businesses that get started uh, that production that's meant to come online cannot be finished because they've been miscalculated based on a um, a false presumption of how much capital is available to complete those pro uh, projects. And as you say, when that happens on mass, that means all of a sudden, you know, businesses and production and entrepreneurs everywhere come to realize there's not enough capital stock for this to be completed. And then, you know, they close up shop, they go out of business, whatever. And that creates this massive, you know, uh, effect on the economy. Um, and, you know, he says here, the way he uh, articulates it is, what the artificial uh, decrease of the real interest rate does is to increase the number of projects that are launched, but the total uh, volume of investments that can be completed has not thereby increased because this volume depends exclusively on the productive resources that are objectively available during the time needed for completion. And what manipulating the interest rate does is uh, basically tricks people into thinking that there's more uh, resources available than there, there really are. I would have loved to see him get into um, the relationship between the capital stock and time preference in setting free market interest rates. I think that would have been some nice context for helping people understand just how uh, disruptive manipulating interest rates is. Um, but, you know, as we said at the beginning, he, he picked and chose where he spent most of his time. And it, it could have been an extremely long book if he'd, you know, gone into detail in a lot of these things. Well, yeah. What you're talking about there, too, goes back to that um, that part from the introduction when we were talking about um, economics is something following natural laws. There, there is a natural underlying reality to all of this. And ultimately, if you're just trying to game reality, game the system, you're going to end up in those in those places where, you know, you faked it and now you can't now you can't do it. Now it's going to come to a halt. There's only so much you can game that system. 
which makes it so fucking i mean it's it's a wonder any of this shit works at all just the level of intervention but you know the creation and production of the money the setting of interest rates and all the other stuff that goes on like it's it's i guess it's a testament to just human will and determination and obviously that has limits and i think we may be approaching them now but um you know as you say uh, like this is really simple let things like let that natural law kind of unfold let the will of each individual actor in an economy dictate you know what their productive capacity is and how much capital they bring to the market and you know this finds natural equilibriums that that satisfies demands as optimally as they can be satisfied but all of this intervention does you know sure short term band-aids short term appropriation for whomever you know cronies disaffected people whatever but to the detriment of the long-term health of these systems. And like, I'm constantly astounded at, the, at how this fucking thing still functions. And now I think there's a lot of things you could point at to say, well, it ain't functioning that well in many respects. There's a lot of people that have been left out and disenfranchised. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, contentious, or there's a lot of kind of conflict that's brewing as a result of the failures of this system. But, you know, that it works at all is, is, is still somewhat surprising to me. Couple of quick thoughts. One is I, I love looking at the um, the interventions through sort of a, like a Talebian lens or framework, which is basically if you keep on trying to smooth out this volatility, the eventual break or the eventual shock is just so much more. Uh, it's such a greater magnitude because you hid that volatility. Um, you know, not unlike a bunch of funds shorting Bitcoin and making it coil up for a long, long time, so we can. Uh, see another giant green candle about five minutes ago and bust through 13k um i know you wanted to talk price on this show um but uh you know the <laughs> other, the other thing is checking price checking price now the other thing while you guys oh, check shit. price um that i, I want to get <laughs> is um you know most of, uh, a lot of the world most of the world really hasn't had the stability from a fiat currency standpoint that the u.s has and you know probably uk Switzerland, you know, Canada, whatever, relative relative stability in, in the fiat currency. So when people see like, oh, there's another devaluation of the peso or the Turkish lira or something like that, people there for so many generations throughout the centuries have come to realize like how unreliable those fiat currencies are and they don't hold any of their wealth in fiat anyway. So, you know, you're talking about some tiny versus like the the net worth of a, a wealthy family or a wealthy business person in, in Buenos Aires or Istanbul, you know, if the fiat currency devalues by half or 90% or whatever, you're talking about like single digit percentage of their wealth. They don't really care that much. People are just on about their day. They change the prices, they charge their tenants more and, uh, and they keep on rolling. Okay. Until you I mean, kind of, but these are just like, I mean, I'm talking about even, yeah, this isn't just the bankers though. This is also like, you know, grandmas that have apartments and stuff, you know, they're kind of stupid enough to hold cash, right? Exactly. They collect apartments. Families collect apartments to rent out. That's basically what they do in these cultures. Um, or they buy farmland or, you know, whatever it is or wine or gold or something, you know, um, which does still have impacts though, right? I mean, one, it pushes them out a little bit on the risk, the risk, you know, spectrum in certain cases, but if nothing else, it just means that they're far less liquid. You know, I, 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 I love the thought, uh, and I guess the current reality, but moving forward into the future, even more so 
that so many more people are so more so much more liquid and that gives you know that's freedom liquid is optionality and optionality is freedom and that and that everyone's going to have that ability to not you know to have an asset that stores their value so well and obviously you know a value accrue to it more more than likely in the, in the short to midterm um, and that that value can there's so much you can do with that i mean that's you know it's great to have real estate that preserves your 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 wealth but that's stuck in the fucking ground right it's not a very liquid asset but you know to have something like bitcoin that has those properties of preservation plus 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 i mean it's amazing dude i on this i literally tweeted this morning i didn't realize it was going to be so relevant but i tweeted that uh biggie and puff misled us um you know it's not mo money more problems it's actually more fiat more problems because you have to put it to work or lose it over time like if you have bitcoin your money is not a problem like i don't feel any incremental stress i feel less and less stress every day the more committed i am to like a personal bitcoin standard it doesn't 100%. change at all like my my storage solutions that I'm comfortable with are exactly the same. Nothing changed. And, you know, and I don't feel like my fiat's burning a hole in my pocket and I have to go and like buy another apartment to rent out, you know, or figure out some sort of like, you know, quadrant four entry point for my Apple stock, you know, I don't need <laughs> oh, the old quad four makes an appearance. You know, I just don't need it. I don't need it. I, I'm like freed from having to watch all the markets all the time. It's just amazing. Like, you can have more money, fewer problems for once. Well, that's just it. You know, you don't Breaks have to be a fucking, you don't have to be a financial planner to live and and be free in the world and 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 make sure that your accrued productivity is is not being taken away or not melting away. All right, who's gonna make the puff daddy Corey memes? <laughs> Greg's tied up, so. <laughs> um. All right. Last thing from my side, he. Uh, he talked about capitalism a bit, and this is just, you know, because it gets so much press these days about, you know, fuck capitalism and all the rest of it. Um, you know, I, I tweeted this out a few days ago, but I thought it was a really succinct quote that I'll probably share when I get into arguments with uh, the, S, S, you know, the political types. Um, but I'll read it out. He says, the prevailing ways of money production, relying as they do on a panoply of legal privileges, are alien elements in the capitalist society, economy. Uh, they provide illicit incomes, encourage irresponsibility and dependence, stimulate the artificial centralization of political and economic decision-making, and constantly create fundamental economic disequilibria that threaten the life and welfare of millions of people. In short, paper money and fractional reserve banking go a long way toward accounting for the excesses of which the capitalist economy is widely chided. That kind of that kind of statement needs to get a, a, a broader signal, broader pump. I hate to sound like the uh, the leftists who say real communism has never been tried, but um, there is a little <laughs> bit of that there with uh, with what is being called capitalism is, you know, um, crony capitalism or uh, or Cantillon capitalism. Um, we're, we're not dealing with a true free market. Yeah, the, the central bank is a, is a, a socialist institution like there's no it's, it's in Mark. Mar it's like one of the first points in Marx's kind of manifesto, like we, we take over, you know, use a central bank to take over the money. Like there's nothing um, in a capitalist, there's nothing in the theory of capitalism that says that that money needs to be controlled like that. Um, yeah, and I'm reading um, Graeber's book at the moment, the, um, the History of Debt, and I think he 
he makes some really good points, but but they, you run into this same problem where he, you know, he he doesn't really know, he doesn't really define capitalism, and like it's not just the left, like it's just about everyone who sees you know sees the crony capitalism that we have and 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 misplaces mistakes that for for real capitalism. So yeah, you've got to you know, and I I, I have that same problem. It's not that Al said, oh, it's not real capitalism. Like you hate to say that. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, we we can't have a discussion unless we properly define our terms. Um, and I, for none of us, our definition of capitalism would include central banking. In fact, it's it's antithetical to capitalism. Totally agree. It's antithetical to Western ideals. Um, all right, I'll finish with this part, and then you guys can uh, can bring up anything that we haven't touched on. But this is the conclusion of the book, and so. The second last paragraph prior to the conclusion, he says, in light of our general discussion of paper money, the answer is patent. All paper money systems, be they national or international, labor under the presence of moral hazard. In the long run, therefore, a global paper money cannot evade the fate of national paper money. It must either collapse in hyperinflation or force the government to adopt a policy of increasing control and eventually total control over all economic resources. Both scenarios entail economic disruptions on a scale that we can barely imagine today. The inevitable result would be death for many hundreds of millions of human beings. Which is not the greatest note to end on, but in the conclusion, he says two things that I'll pick out. One, the point is to return to uni a universal respect for property rights. And he also says there's no reason why today we should be unable to accomplish such things or something even better. And the preceding lines were just him talking about uh, getting, you know, back to a better standard. And a couple of things jump out. One, I mean, we all have probably drummed up the worst case scenario events in our heads where these systems and styles of economic organization and, and governments uh, lead. And hopefully, as we discussed a little bit before, we can avoid that through Bitcoin. Um, and he, but one of the lines is, the point is to return to a universal respect for property rights. And one of the things that I think is so special about Bitcoin is you don't need people to, I mean, obviously we hope there's still respect for property rights and that's certainly something we should strive for in a society, but Bitcoin is de facto property rights, right? You don't need other people to hold them up or enforce them for you. And that's one of the very special things about Bitcoin is that level of ownership that you can have over it that is so unique to Bitcoin, especially as a monetary or market good. Yeah, that's all. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an argument that it is the only thing you can truly own, right? I mean, land can be taken from you, your gold can be taken from you, anything else, but if you're willing to die for your private key, they can't take it from you, no matter yeah. what. I mean, I guess the the you reason why you got multisig, they can't take it from you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess the reason why I brought that up was because you know so often uh, the Austrians and the gold bugs and stuff, they kind you know, and what choice do they have? They harken back to you know, hopefully at some point we'll come to our senses. You know, humanity will improve, be more enlightened, whatever, and we can respect this more and we can adhere to this more. Um, and I just think that the, you know, the point of Bitcoin is that, you know, we can't really rely on humanity or each of our individuals behavior to be the thing that props up 
our collective organization and cooperation. It's just, it's failed time and time again. It's worked for periods of time, but ultimately it's proven to lead to the same sort of outcomes. And again, I, you know, that's why I think we're all here in, in Bitcoin is that, you know, we wouldn't be here so passionately if it was reliant on just Al being a good guy or all of us coming together and saying, well, it's like the constitution in the U S I mean, ph phenomenal document, you know, extremely wise, you know, founders to have put together something like that, but still, you know, just a piece of paper and subject to the imperfections of the humans that decide to hold that up or, or not hold it up. And, you know, that's what's so, Al, what you were just saying about Bitcoin being maybe the first thing that you could ever own. Um, and again, something that you have that ownership of that has so much optionality. I mean, it's not like an idea or something. It's actually something that you can fully own and protect and also use to facilitate everything else that you want to do in life. And it relies on the cooperation or the, the let's say the approval of nobody. And... You know, again, freedom, motherfuckers. Humans are weak. <laughs> Humans are weak. Every time we have the ability to control the money spigot or the economy, we fuck it up, right? We we enslave our brothers and sisters for our own gain. The more power we have, the the worse it gets. With Bitcoin, it just takes that control out of your hands. You don't have the option anymore, right? So how much easier does that make society? It removes, fr it removes friction from the economy and society at large. And all that manipulation you know, that we've been talking about here, you know, about the production of money and the, the, the appropriation of, of value from that money and the setting of, and the, you know, the illusory nature of most people's impression of how much money there is and the capital stock and everything. I mean, it, it's... <laughs> Solves a lot of those problems. Fixes this. We, Fixes uh, this. yeah, we discussed the sovereign individual a couple of months ago on the, on this podcast, and I think that you know you, you can bring it back to that where we it's a, it's a it is a fundamental technological shift. It, it, the information age in general and Bitcoin in particular, in in the favor of free voluntary exchange and and the holders of assets like you're at, you have a now have a fundamental advantage that you didn't have before because of the the unconfiscatable nature of your asset uh, that is you know you holding the private key and also the the liquidity of it as you said John so those two factors give this power to to the asset that you know, states can push back against that, but that that's out of the bag. Like that, that can't be changed. That that is a step in the direction of of freedom, freedom of the individual, freedom of of the market, and and voluntary exchange. Uh, and so that's an undeniably positive thing, I think. Yeah, and like Greg was saying, you know, it restrains some of the worst aspects of our humanity. But as uh, Dremen just said in the chat, you know, it it also uh, puts certain parameters around some of them so that we can, you know, we can actually use them, you know, and I, I'm sure we've all thought about this uh, before, but, you know, greed can be good now because it, 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 it you know, it, it restrains greed enough or it keeps it within in certain parameters that now whatever energy is behind that greed, you know, we can kind of squeeze out the good energy of greed and leave out the the negative consequences of having it be expressed previously. 
and of course there's you know there's caveats for all of this but we're talking general terms about what kind of what sort of behavior is both permitted and incentivized in an economy i mean you know i i agree with that sentiment that you know greed can now be less destructive at the very least i got a question for you guys do you like twitter <laughs> never heard of it oh, do you i'm just okay everybody likes twitter okay cool uh, Love so relationship. Bitcoin is like a 280 character limit on uh, human behavior. <laughs> Go on. That's it. That's it. That's, that's, <laughs> that's that the insight. But no, I mean, I think what it is, is like, it, it's, I mean, honestly, that's kind of a summary of the book in some ways, at least some of the things around, um, you know, what, what behaviors are induced by uh, rampant, you know, fiat printing and what that does to culture and society and priorities and choices of families and individuals and companies, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, this, this, this invention, which was forecast by many, but I think ended up being probably better than the forecasts as far as like what digital cash was, what the properties were that were chosen for Bitcoin, which, which, uh, which we have, I think are better than most people's forecasts of what e-cash would be. Um, and more meaningful and more impactful on society than what we thought eCash could be, uh, rewrites the playbook. It basically settles once and for all, you know, 50 to 90% of the arguments that freshman philosophy students have <laughs> late at night in, in their liberal arts campuses. It's like, no, that shit's just, that's just wrong. Like, we don't really have to talk about that anymore. Your views are wrong, you know, because Bitcoin is and, and that's reality. And now everything, has to align with with that reality and from this day forward you know that's that's how we will all sort of see things because those are the facts on the ground and they're indisputable um so yeah i think it's it's like uh the constraints of 21 million uh unleash this creativity because you're working within a framework that's uh that's much more um you know well it's just it is the framework now and we will all be on the same playing field and you know, sort of thinking about at least those things affected by having sound money. We'll be thinking about those things in the same way. And that's almost everything. Yeah. You know, it's like we were saying about the, the, the financialization of everything, how it's taken up so much time and resources just to manage your wealth. And now Bitcoin has reversed that trend. I think we'll see that come to so many different things where Bitcoin kind of dissolves away your need to dwell or grapple with things even internally and frees up your you know the whole bitcoin zen sort of thesis where you know you you're, you're relieved of the worry uh, or the attention required for i think we'll find out a lot of different things and you can then focus that energy and attention on you know like providing value to the market and things that you know are meaningful to you and that sort of thing but i think a lot dissolves away as a result of bitcoin being kind of the dominant paradigm John, if you wouldn't mind, I, I found the greatest Bitcoin fixes this quote ever, I think, while I was reading this. Um, and it, it really ties a lot of this together. Um, what Greg was saying about every time you give control to humans, about building systems that are not susceptible to human nature, about the Catholic philosophy. Um, but uh, I'll read this real quick. I think this is the greatest Bitcoin fixes this of all time. Excited. It says, thus, counterfeiting exists in all types of economies, be it the market of a free society or that of a centrally planned economy of a totalitarian state. Unlike fiat money, of which we will speak below, it cannot be abolished 
through political measures. It can be repressed by the prospect of such external means or of severe punishment, but it cannot be entirely eliminated by such external means because it springs from the internal human condition of original sin. In uh, in preventing counterfeiting, Bitcoin fixes original sin. That is the, the biggest Bitcoin fix <laughs> ever come upon. Um, and, you know, it is only a little piece of, of the idea, but it really... It's that true. would actually, that would be great to explore. Yeah. We, we should actually dig into that sometime. We need to get... Uh, you need to get Bitcoin rabbi and then find a, uh, a Catholic priest who's into Bitcoin. Get them on. And I'll, call, uh, I'll call Jordan Peterson and get him yeah, to hop on. That's true. And That'd be amazing. Have a chat could, about it. If you could get him on. <laughs> I, I would pay a few sats to see that. Yeah, you and me both. Um, well, gents, that's uh, all I got. Anybody else have any closing thoughts or, or things they wanted to get in before we shut this thing down? Yeah, I think... Uh... I think everybody is undervaluing Bitcoin. Everybody. Agreed. I think I think nobody has, at least that I've seen, come up with an explanation of what absolute scarcity is going to mean for how economies function in the future. And I think it's going to be an explosion of productivity in line with the explosion of mathematics after this, the discovery or the invention of the number zero. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think every projection I've seen about adoption X curves and valuations, just they're all too low. They don't make any sense. Did you it's guys completely different at the risk of opening up a can of worms? Did you guys see any of the back and forth between Breedlove and Voskul about the concept of economic scarcity the other day? No, no. No. Yeah, I did. I found that really interesting because I think Eric's got a makes a, a good point, um, and I've I've heard him. You know, he's a thorn in the side of a lot of different people, um, <laughs> and and as annoying as he is, like he usually he usually has has a good point, uh, even if it's just a definitional, but we'll issue. But but I think he. It, Vosco attacks like an, a really fundamental um, belief in in Bitcoin, which is forget the actual stock to flow price prediction model, but he attacks just the concept of stock to flow um, as a, just as a concept. Like he he doesn't think that that has any validity. Um, I, I don't know why they just didn't settle on that. Um, the production like new production is unresponsive to demand like it's i agree it's it's, it's, it's really just a definitional <laughs> you know it's just about picking a term and defining your term i agree it could have been sold it, it, like okay if scarcity in the the economic sense um to sum up what what was discussed like um uh, Robert and I think all of us talk about scarcity in, in a relative sense and we say, um, okay, gold is more scarce than silver um, and Bitcoin is, is potentially more scarce than gold. Um, but, but Eric's saying, no, no, that, that's a misuse of the term. Scarcity is binary. So a thing is scarce or not scarce. It can't be more or less scarce. Like, I, And scarce in the sense of can it be monetized, can it be an economic good? Like air, oxygen is not a scarce good because, you, you know, you can just – you can't have a money value, but anything else – 
bananas, um, houses, you know, gold is scarce um, because it can be monetized um, and, and you can only be relatively scarce to, to your, this is a bit hard to understand, to, relative to, to itself as a function of price. Um, like we, we talk about um, scarcity and stock to flow ratios influencing price, whereas he says it's the other way around. Um, like price, that is the intersection of supply and demand, is is what creates um, the the relative scarcity. It's a bit of a I, even for me. It's a mind. I, I love how Eric, you know, in his way of articulating and thinking about things, he 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 does put pressure on you to clarify your thinking. But he's never going to be the type to be on a you know a dialogue with you and say like. Oh, I see what you're trying to say there. Like he won't give you that. Oh, yeah. he, he he's going to. <laughs> it, it has to be by the book. Every articulation you make have to has to be like you know. He's not going to give you any um, any you know leeway. You're going to have to go all the way there and make it work. Uh, he's not going to help you out. He is a lot a of... when it comes to definitions too. I mean, he loves to invoke definitions and wordplay, but. He's uh, I met him once and he's he's one of those people that you start talking to and you're like, wow, I don't feel very smart right now. Like he's super <laughs> brilliant, but I, I would hate to get in an argument with him because he can be pedantic. And yeah, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of master debaters on uh, Bitcoin Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are indeed. It definitely makes you stay sharp and uh, and put out crisp, clean sentences that are that don't contain ambiguity. And then if somebody really wants to win a point, they'll still twist what you said. Um, but that's when you can just leave the thread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anybody else closing thoughts on uh, the book or anything else? No, I'm, I'm all jacked up from learning from you guys. I'm literally about to uh, get on the phone with a Seattle restaurateur who owns a ridiculous number of restaurants in the Northwest. And uh, he's a friend of my brother's and he finally said he wanted to have the Bitcoin chat. Um, Nice. Sorry, I wasn't able to get him on the phone last week because I know it's going to be successful mm -hmm. and could have gotten him in at like 10, 5 or 11 or something, but whatever. Lots of upside to come. <laughs> exactly. All sats under 100K are cheap sats. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, gents. Well, look, thanks for coming on and having a chat about this book. I know for some it's not the uh, most exciting material, but it does form the basis for uh, a lot of the ideas, concepts, and understanding that we often talk about in this space. So I think, well, I hope at least, you know, some people that maybe haven't read it or haven't talked about this shit before, it'll bring some value to them. And uh, yeah, it's always fun talking with you guys. So thanks for joining and uh, we'll do it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. See thanks, you guys. Tom.